Hello, and welcome to the Smart Karma Podcast. I'm Michael Tejos. Every week on the podcast, we share a presentation and discussion from our webinar Wednesdays, when we sit down with Smart Karma insight providers and selected experts from around the world to break down the key topics you care about in Asia's markets. You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pocket Casts, and so on. If you like what we do, consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your chosen podcast app, as this really helps more people discover the show. Thank you for being with us, and enjoy the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another webinar by Smart Karma. I'm Michael Tegos. Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming back analyst Nicholas van Brookhoven, who will go through his latest picks in the Singapore market. Nicholas was on the buy side for 15 years and worked most recently at a medium-sized boutique asset management firm. He grew up in Europe, went to university in the U.S., and has been living in Singapore for the past few years, which has given him a broad scope on the world and investing in general. He considers himself a generalist investor with a preference for small and mid-cap companies and special situations. However, a large cap that has gone temporarily out of favor might also pique his interest. As always, please feel free to send in your questions for Nicholas throughout the webinar using the Q&A button on your Zoom app. We will do our best to get to them during the Q&A session at the end. Please do not reshare the contents of this webinar without our express permission. We will have a recording available on the registration page afterwards, and we'll share it with all attendees. Nicholas, welcome back to the webinar. It's great to have you here once again. So over to you. Thanks for the intro. So yeah, we have about 25 minutes to go over some of the um, Singapore-based ideas I've been publishing on Smart Karma. Uh, So yeah, so I was on the buy side for a number of years. I've been on Smart Karma since 2017. Uh, Some of my work has been published in Bloomberg Financial Times uh, and other publications. A few years ago, I was picked on the SDSGX Research uh, Leaders Panel. So for those of you who might have seen that, there was a you know over the last few years there was a series in the, on the Straits Times and with SGX on people who are primarily focused on, on the Singapore market and who have been following it for a long time. On Smart Karma, two of the companies I've been recently writing a lot about, which is AEM and Rex. As a generalist investor, I mean I think you know small is, is beautiful. There's a lot of interesting opportunities for small cap investors, and illiquid stocks can become very liquid very fast. I mean this is a story of AEM over the last five six years. It used to be a very small company, which was just liquid, uh, and has now grown into a one billion. US dollar company, it's up, you know, six, seven hundred percent over the last few years, been one of the best performers or the best performers on the SGX. And I, I still think the risk reward here is interesting. So we'll go into that a little bit later. I will spend most of my this presentation talking about AEM uh, because I think the alignment of shareholders and management is actually quite good there. Everyone here probably has heard of or read or thinks about Warren Buffett. He, he talks about needing to find elephants to move Berkshire Hathaway. Uh, right now, the elephant he likes a lot seems to be Occidental Petroleum. I mean, that's you know billions of dollars a day in, in trade. But we, or at least for me, as an investor and analyst looking at companies, we, we need to find a proverbial mouse. We need to find smaller companies that become larger and, and grow over time. But we don't need to, you know, we, we, we can have an edge in these smaller, mid-sized companies. Some of the ideas that I've highlighted this year, uh, I mean, I've been writing this thing, you know, overview of my winners and losers every year. You can see how they've done. Most of the time, they've done quite well. This year, I'm, I'm 
struggling a bit, but I think that's the overall market. So two of the ideas, which are Singapore ideas, which I highlighted at the end of last year as my some of the key picks uh, for this year, were AEM, which has a 1.4 billion sing dollar market cap, and Rex, which has a 310 million market cap. Both of them are down here today, so that's um, obviously not great, but that's what investing is. It's not in a linear straight line up; it's with ups and downs. So in order to understand AEM, I think you need to have a little bit of a look at the industry where they operate in. So AEM is active in the semiconductor supply chain. There's a multi-year roots to the issues which have plagued this industry for a number of years. So it started when Trump was president with the US-China trade war, which has really created a lot of tension uh, between big producer of a lot of these chips and a lot of the IP coming from the US and being manufacturers in China. And so this is, and then, then Taiwan in the mix as well. So it's been really created a difficult backdrop. And then COVID came along. Here, it's I would say in, in Singapore now, they've announced more relaxations. And in, the, in Europe, I mean, basically it's more or less back to normal. But in China, it still continues to be, you know, lockdowns uh, left, right and center. And so that means that the supply response and when, when manufacturers are, uh, have to close or clients or customers have to close, depending on which side of the, on the spectrum you look at, um, has really created an uncertain environment. And in the beginning of COVID, there was particularly with the automakers, there was a big miscalculation where they basically annulled a lot of their orders and they had to suffer the consequences later on. And this is what we see with a lot of automakers. You, you might've read stories about this around the world that to get a new car is uh, long wait times, uh, which has uh, also led to secondhand cars actually increasing in value, which has been an astonishing fact. Uh, as the basically some semiconductors told the automakers, you know, who cut their orders, okay, now you go back to the line. And, you know, people who took that front of the line were other industries that were also using semiconductor chips. The use of semiconductors, not just with cars, but basically across the industries has continued to boom and will very likely continue to do so going forward. So just if you look at a car, I mean, the amount of connectivity there is and the amount of chips that are required and the regulations that are promoting this chip usage has just been phenomenal. And all these tests need to be tested and they need to be 99.99999% accurate all the time. Because if you have, for example, if you're backing up with your car and you need a rear view mirror, it needs to function all the time. And then it needs to, the beepers need to alert you when there's someone behind you, et cetera. The camera needs to work. And see, this is all, you know, if you have a new car, you will also know that many car, all the car mechanics, they cannot do much with your car because it's all electronics now. And you, if you have a problem, you have to go to the, the garage and they will read out, you know, your, your key and see what the issues are. So it's all electronics. A lot of it's, you know, basically um, all come down to chips and how they interconnect with one another. So when your car gets smarter, the content of the semiconductor content goes up. So in 2011, it used to be 100 bucks. It's now gone up to, for EV cars, it's up to 6,000 bucks. And this is, of course, for Western cars. I mean, I know there's cars in India and, and cheaper cars in Russia with Aftovas and stuff that have lower components. But I'm talking about Western, Japanese, American, high-end Chinese brands, which will have this kind of broad ball costs to, to, the, to the manufacturer of putting these chips and these, uh, these things in the car. This is another overview from Applied Materials, how over time they see high-end smartphones, auto, data center, smart home, and how the, uh, you know, the semi-content per unit 
has just you know skyrocketed across sectors. So this is just a very very interesting industry, which is uh, you know very concentrated in a few places, especially also in Taiwan. So there's a lot of interest in in what is happening here. And this is another one, you know, where you see basically there was the mainframe area and the PC, the internet, the mobility, and just the demand for this industry just continues to rise. It's now also gotten much more political. In 2001, there were 30 major production hubs, and now, I mean, last of last year, there were just a handful. 80% is concentrated in three countries: Taiwan, Japan, and Korea. And you know, the COVID and the trade wars have really shown the vulnerability of the U.S. and the EU dependence. So as you might have seen, uh, there's now the Chips Act in the U.S., where Intel and others have been basically have been propped to set up manufacturing in the U.S., but also Europe. And you know, you've had announcements by Intel that they will make new hubs in Italy, in France, in Germany, all heavily sponsored by these respective countries, as they understand that if you have no manufacturing capability, you are at the mercy of Taiwan, Japan, and Korea. And if there's anything that disrupts these flows, then there could be big issues for your own manufacturing capacity. Yeah, it's very expensive and it takes a long time. This is not something that can be solved overnight. Uh, the big picture play here is that Intel has been suffering for many years. It's been basically, it's still 140 billion US dollar market cap, but the stock's down 34% year to date. It's been suffering for many years, it's been a huge laggard. They have missed some of the key developments where AMD has been beating them. But when Intel is spending big, and which they have been doing now in the last few years, AEM is a big beneficiary because a lot of the specific equipment in uh, HDMT, they, they are sole supplier to Intel. So when Intel is expanding their testing capabilities, the supplier of choice here is AEM. And so AEM is very dependent on Intel, which is, can be good, but it's also a risk because it's sole, sole supplier you know, benefit, but also a risk. So 72% of last year's revenues were linked to Intel. You know, obviously, AEM is trying to diversify, but you know, given it's such a large base and it's still growing, it's a difficult thing to decrease very rapidly. And so what is interesting here is that over the last two years, there's been new professional management coming into AEM from bigger companies. And they are really trying hard to win over new customers to join AEM. And so this is what's, what is at play. And I think you have seen some announcements by AEM already, but I think you will see more, which will decrease the dependency of AEM on Intel going forward. But nevertheless, it will remain a very important customer. And as Intel is expanding its CapEx, AEM is going to you know, benefit. This is a system level testing and how it's expected to grow. But this is what basically they are predicting in terms of the uh, of the market demand to grow for their various products and services they, they supply. So it's historically it's made test handlers. It's I think it's still a misunderstood IT play, even though the stock's up 600% over the last few years. It's been a regular dividend payer, but people see it as a one-trick pony. And even after the latest results last week, which were you know stellar by any meaning, there were some analyst downgrades and people saying, oh, you know, the second half will be worse than the first grade. And so I think it's a big lack of understanding of this company. And interestingly, yesterday, uh, HSBC picked up coverage and they were saying many of the same things that I've been saying writing on the on Smart Karma platform, that this actually is a multi-year 
you know, horizon. And, you know, just looking at second half or one quarter is, uh, is too short-sighted. You will miss the bigger upside picture. You know, many of the analysts only have five, five and a half. Now HSBC has 6.6 sing dollar target in terms of AEM. I think this, this will be an eight sing dollar stock. So it's almost doubled from here. The reason is that this uh, expansion by Intel is going to last way longer than anyone expects. And you have to have some belief that a lot of the uh, spending they've been doing over the last few years and, and trying to attract new clients is really going to come to uh, some kind of success. I think the odds of that are, are quite good. Also, you might have seen a lot since last year, Temasek is the, you know, the sovereign wealth firm from Singapore is now the largest investor in uh, AEM. They have a 12% stake and they used to be a little bit smaller, so they've been buying in the market. So I think that's encouraging. A few years ago, uh, Wei San, which is the basically the, the chairman uh, of the company, was asked if he would <clears throat> ever consider listing on Nasdaq because it would raise the profile of the company. And he said once a billion dollar market cap was achieved, they could look at that. And that's now the case. You know, it's now over a billion US dollars. And that's why I think also you see big brokers like HSBC and Citigroup picking up coverage of a company like AEM. I think what I like about AEM is that they've always communicated very well. They've, they've been very aggressive on, on buybacks when the stock's attractive and under pressure. I wrote also, you know, you can look on the history of my insights on smart karma. I, I've written about that and given some examples in the past when they were aggressively buying back stock. It usually meant that, you know, the next few set of results were going to be quite good. Uh, they've been a regular dividend payer since 2016. I, I don't think they've ever missed guidance. So when they give guidance, they, they're, they're quite sure that they are going to meet it. And they, they have a habit of raising guidance throughout the year, especially in, in good years. There's a large free float. And so that I think also makes it attractive at some points could be a common M&A target itself. And there's large option packages for good performance to the chairman, CEO, et cetera. So I think that's, you know, it's a good alignment of interest between management and minority shareholders, which is, you know, with other SGX companies that's sometimes lacking, I find, because you, a lot, a lot of times you have a very dominant family and there's not a great alignment of interest between what their long-term interests are and what the minority interests are. I mean, I'm generalizing here, but that's the overall comment. So Rex was an IPO in 2013 on the SGX, actually it was on Catalyst uh, at 50 cents, then immediately rocketed higher to about 80 cents. The story at the IPO about, you know, so it's close to 10 years ago, was more about virtual drilling. So they have this technology, which they still have, which helps oil companies, you know, locate with higher precision where oil can be found. And at that time, in 2013, the oil price was above $120. Uh, then the oil price collapsed in the coming years. The company had no revenues. Um, the demand for the virtual drilling technology was less than anticipated, and the stock dropped to $0.04 cents or $0.05. Cents. I don't remember the exact bottom, but it dropped, you know, basically got decimated. Then there was a, a, some shift in the thinking of the company with lots of divestitures, et cetera. But they've also then started finally to produce oil themselves in Oman. And this came to fruition in 2020, particularly in 2021, when oil started flowing in Oman and later in Norway. And you could really see a huge buildup of cash flow uh, at the company. Earlier this year, the stock was close to $0.50, single cents, so almost back to their IPO level. The stock is now at $0.24, $0.25 cents again. What's happened here is that the major producing asset historically was Oman. And um, they've had basically a terrible first half. They've had 70 days of no production in the first half. First, there was some equipment that needed to be changed, and then there was a, a leak in the flow line. So that's basically the line that connects the, the field to the to the barge where the oil is collected. They, they now think that it's due to uh, fishing nets that have been you know, obstructing some of their uh, equipment, and this has caused some damage. Uh, they're still investigating, but 
it, I mean, the, the crux of it is that basically they've recorded uh, the first half, even with all those issues, they had $100 million in revenue and about $41 million in EBITDA. But if the production wouldn't have been halted for 70 days, the revenues would have been 50% higher. So that's a, it's, it's a huge figure com- compared to the market cap. Because, uh, you know, remember, this is US dollar and the market cap above is 310 million Sing dollars. So that's about, you know, compared to 250 million US dollars or so in market market cap. So, you know, if, if you just double the... Uh, the revenue you're talking about a company that's trading close to one times revenue and maybe two times EV EBITDA pending where the second half comes in. But I mean, just to show you that this is unbelievably cheap, even for oil companies that are usually trading at, at low multiples. So what has the management done over the last few years as well? They've added a second production base. So they have they bought a stake, 33% stake in the Braga field. And now earlier this month, they bought a 10% stake in the EM field. So they will, they're both immediately producing, adding cash flow to the company. Then now they've also had two fields in Malaysia, which hopefully come into production first half of next year. And then they've made an investment in Sur, which is a, a drone company. And this is not the drones you buy in Toys R Us, but these are drones that have industrial usage and that can fly four or five hours. And you might say, why would they invest in a drone company? But there's actually quite a lot of offshore, If you, if you for example, if you want to you inspect the pipeline if you want to inspect an offshore platform, if you want to inspect border control. There, there's quite a few interesting um, you know, developments in this space. And it's relatively small investments, a couple of million US dollars. But it's something that, you know, if it turns out to be something bigger, could be could be a wild card that could add, you know, to the to the company. The cash position is very strong. So they have over hundred million US dollars in, in cash. And the long-term objective here is to get to 20,000 barrels per day in production which is you know, what, what they are aiming for. Obviously, with the issues in Oman, they're far away from that. Because last year, they were producing about 10 to 12,000 barrels a day in Oman. And in the first half, you know, it was dropping every month. At some months, it was basically zero. So now they have to you know, rebuild the production in Oman. And as also in the fourth quarter, they will start a new exploration drilling in Oman primarily, but also some in Norway, which, you know, these exploration targets could always, you know, bring up new exciting opportunities, but that they could also be dry wells because they recently had a dry well in Norway, which they announced. I think the, the announcements by the company are quite good. They announced their monthly production, so you can keep track of how they are doing. That's something I would be watching. I, I'll, I just published a new update on Rex this, uh, this morning, so you can read my latest thoughts in more detail. I think the stock would double or triple from here. If they can fix the Oman issue, I think it's just way too cheap. And I think the downside is protected by an 8% uh, dividend yield, which will start to be paid as of next month. So they will, the stock will go ex-dividend next month. And then from then on, they will pay a quarterly dividend every quarter uh, next year. That's a dividend policy they announced earlier this year. So I think that's um, that's an interesting setup. I mean, obviously, stock's been disappointing. Oil price has been ripping higher, and this one's down year to date. But I think it's also created an opportunity, although I do agree that management has to deliver on, on, the, on the execution. Thank you very much, Nicholas. Uh, if you have any questions on uh, what he has just shared, please uh, share them through the Q&A button on your Zoom app. We actually had a couple of attendees raise their hands during the course of the presentation. So I invite them to send in their questions now if they still have them. I um, see I see one question here already. We have, on the yes, AM we have a question from background. Mr. 
Yes. So, okay. Mr. Peter Williamson uh, asks for some quick background on AEM yes. management. Yeah. So I didn't get into that, but that's a, it's a very good question because basically the, the history of AEM goes back, you know, many years. And the old management was basically uh, 2015, 2014. It was it was very corrupt. They ended up in jail, and there was a, a private equity fund in Singapore called Novo Telos uh, under the leadership of Wei San, who is still involved who took over the management of the company as they were intrigued that this company where the owners were basically, or the old management team was basically in jail, they were able to keep their relationship with Intel. So Novotelos, basically as a, as a private equity fund, they stepped in and they took a, with their fund, they took a big position and they started to actively manage the company. And they basically, you know, brought it to where it is today. And Wei San is, is um, you know, is still on board. He's still an essential part of the company, although he does not manage the company day to day. So they have hired uh, Chandra Nair, who's an experienced uh, tech executive. And they've now hired, you know, also CFO from a previously, you know, public list company the last two years. And they've hired many different, you know, I mean, you, you look at their annual report. I don't know all of them by name, but they've hired quite a few senior executives from many different companies. They've also had some senior executives join them from all the acquisitions they've made across the last three years uh, that are now also in you know, serious leadership positions for them. So Thank you very much see. for that. So another question is, what is the cash position of AEM? What is their cash flow situation? No, so they're very, it's very strong. They've, they've barely have any debt. I mean, they've taken on some debt for some of the acquisitions. I don't know the latest, the latest acquisition they did in Korea, Nestec. I don't think they disclosed the amount and the, how they financed it, but I would assume it's a, it's a small acquisition. So they have all, and they've been regular dividend payers and regular buying back their own stock. They've always had, you know, very good operating cash flow, very good margins as well. So you will can see that over the years, they have their net profit margins, uh, you know, is, is close to 15, 16%. Gross margins are, are you know, are, are obviously way higher. Um, so, and they've been able to maintain that for a number of years. So it, it does seem like they're, uh, you know their operational cash flow is uh, is very strong and will and will likely continue to do so because it's also a bit of a razor razor blade model where they first sell the equipment to Intel and then you know the sockets and a lot of the material that needs to be replaced is then sold on to Intel and other customers so then they they have this repeat business coming from that. I see. Thank you very much. Are there any quick updates on Los Andes Copper and Tesoro resources? Yeah, Los Andes, I've written about Tesoro, I've mentioned once. Um, Los Andes actually has been, you know, performing tremendously well this year, both from an operational point of view and a stock market point of view. I was just checking it's up 30% year to date, which is uh, in a, if you follow the mining sector, it's been, you know, a lot of them have been, you know, really hit hard this year. And Los Andes has been really, it's up 30% year to date. So that's been a great performance. They've also uh, managed to sort out some of their drilling issues, which uh, will, you will now in the next few months, you'll get more drilling results. You will also get an updated pre-feasibility study, which will, uh, you know, which will highlight to the market how interesting this copper project is. You might have also seen that BHP has tried to acquire Oz, Oz Minerals and then Rio Tinto tried to acquire Turquoise Hill, which were both rejected by shareholders. Uh, so I think for this whole transition to the green economy, uh, copper is going to be a key asset. And I think Los Andes is one of the most interesting uh, companies because it has a, a very big project in Chile. Uh, that is not owned by a major yet. And I think, you know, it's also interesting to see that the CEO continues to buy back stock in the market all, for the last few months, on, on, almost on a daily basis. So I'm very positive on Los Andes Copper. I think it has a, 
it will get acquired at some point, and I think it will be at a substantial premium to where the stock is today. Then to Zorro, uh, very quickly, I think it's uh, it's also in Chile. It's a, it's a gold project. I think it's uh, very interesting that there the, the the stock has been you know massively hit because of you know variety of issues. I think there's a they have a joint venture partner which they're in a lawsuit with, which has not helped sentiment, and they've had to raise equity multiple times because it's a junior explorer, so they always need cash. Management could have done some things better. I think there, uh, I think the project is solid, and I. Think I think over time, you know, value will come out, but uh, obviously it's it's led to much dilution. So it's it's um, it's, it's a more difficult story than than Los Angeles Copper. Understood. Thank you very much. There's another question on a different company, and then a few questions on Rex. So maybe I'll tackle the other one first. Would you be able to give an update of your view on Olam? Olam, yeah, Olam. I was very, I mean, I was very excited about Olam in the end of last year, beginning of this year, because they were going to IPO their, um, you know, OFI asset in uh, in London, but then they postponed it. I think that was a mistake. I think they would they should have gone ahead because I think the I don't know if the market environment is going to get particularly better for these uh, IPOs. I think they were actually in a very good spot with their, uh, you know, food business, and they they could they should have gone ahead. And this would have been a big unlocking event for Olam. So and now I'm. I'm kind of agnostic. I'm, I'm I'm more on the sidelines here. I will see if they can if they can revive the IPO prospects because they need that to unlock the value here. So they they have two divisions which need to become basically publicly listed, and I think then the market will value it way higher. Until that happens, I think it's kind of dead money. So. Thank you for that. There's a few questions on Rex now. Yep. Maybe we can uh, tackle them like rapid fire. Does yes. Rex International explore for natural gas? Uh, it's a by, well, it's mostly oil. So they could have some some natural gas as a byproduct, but mostly oil. Any idea how long, how much longer can their current Oman reserves last? Oh, that's that, so. That's one of the reasons why it's a it's a usually a low multiple stock. So it's only about three uh, three years or so that they can they have production. But the thing is, they are now doing this exploration campaign in the in Block Fifty One where they have the ownership. And so it is very possible that they find more oil in their in their concession, and that this you know lifeline could be extended for much longer than people expect. And that's of course the upside scenario where they able, where they're able to find large new discoveries and put these into production, uh, which would be you know the best case. Understood. Thank you. An attendee mentions the uh, 8.3% yield and asks, "Isn't it unusual for a junior explorer that needs to invest to grow proven reserves?" No, I think it's, I think, they, well, they're more now than a junior. I think they're now a producer. Obviously, now the first half kind of ruined their starting reputation because, you know, in March, the stock was a 50 because people just looked at the annual results and they were really good and people were extrapolating that into this year. And then they had all the issues in Oman. So it will be, it will have to be, it remains to be seen. But the dividend that they deliberately put it on a low level, but on a quarterly basis, on a, on a level they think they can sustain for multiple years. I think it is good, you know, capital management discipline. Ideally, I would like them to, at the current share price, actually you know, buy back a lot of stock because I think it's super cheap. But management has, you know, so far resisted to do that. And well, if you look at now what's happening in, uh, in Oman, obviously, you know, when, if you're missing fifty million dollars from the hundred million, I mean, not missing, but I mean, if you if you could have earned that extra, that you know, that's money that's that's not there that could have been spent on, you know either extra dividends or buybacks. So that's yeah something they need to fix. So, I, and then the next question I see here from Peter Williamson is, is the rec dividend secure? I think it is. I mean, I think I would be pretty shocked if they scrapped the dividend next year, given that they thought about it for so long and they just announced this policy. So I think in a 
best case scenario, you will see extra dividends being announced next year if they can resolve their issues. And the, and the oil price, of course, stays at 90 plus dollars. If the oil price goes back to 40 to 50 dollars, then it's it's more tricky because then, you know, you, you get into a territory where, you know, they might not be, be so profitable anymore. I think that's the risk with investing in commodity stocks. If the underlying commodity goes down a lot, um, you know, you could also have issues. Got it. Thank you very much, Nicholas, for your presentation and for answering all of the audience's questions. Thank you. You're welcome. And if for... anyone else has any questions, uh, you can always, you know, use the comment boxes under the insights and I'll try to answer it. Absolutely. And you will find links in the chat to Nicholas's uh, latest insights on Rex and AEM, as well as a link to his profile page on Smart Karma, which I encourage you to follow. As Nicholas mentioned, you will be able to message him or comment on uh, his insights if you have any further questions for him. Please note that Nicholas is also available for bespoke research requests uh, or premium services. So please contact your Smart Karma account manager in this regard. If you have any other questions or comments for Smart Karma, please email us at research at smartkarma.com. With that, thank you everyone for attending and for sharing your questions. And thank you especially to you, Nicholas, for uh, sharing your time. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks. That's it for this week. If you like this episode, please share it with your networks. Subscribe to the podcast feed so you don't miss an episode. And follow Smart Karma on your social media. We're Smart Karma everywhere. And of course... Don't forget to visit smartkarma.com for truly independent, differentiated investment research. As always, thank you very much for listening and see you next time.